0: Well, let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house this morning with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we never want to take this privilege for granted. We come to you humbly and with open arms, Father, allowing ourselves to hear your word, to praise you and worship you, Father, that we may be better because of it. We may be more like your Son. May your Spirit be with us this morning. Father, may everything that we do, say, hear, Father, be done to the glory of your Son, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you all remember, we are in Romans chapter 12. We have not covered a lot of ground, but I feel like it's been beneficial. This will be our third week on Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses. And this will be our last week on this first section of one, verse one and two. As I was thinking about worship, which is what we've been talking about, extreme worship is what the title of these lessons were. I thought about you know that game that you play where you someone would say one word and or, and you kind of say the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the term worship. What is the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear worship? God. Anybody else? Church. Adoration. Anybody else? Holy, holy, holy. That's three words, but I'll allow it. (laughs) Actually, it is one word, three times. Anybody else? Any other things that pop to mind when you hear the word worship? What pictures come to mind when you think of worship? Awe. Those are all good answers. One of the things I think of when I think of worship, of course, I'm drawn to the Old Testament sometimes when I think of how they worshiped. And one of the pictures I have in my mind is this awe and this holiness of of God is the picture in the temple when the priest goes in. And he's the only one that can go in and worship God. He's the only one that's allowed. And they actually tie a rope around him in case he does something wrong that he might be struck dead, and they can pull him back out so that nobody else can come in. That's the kind of things that I think of when I think about worship. And there's all kinds of things. People think of songs and praise, singing praises, even our tithes and offerings are considered worship. There's a lot of things in the Bible that go to talk about worship. But one of the best examples, I think, that Jesus, when he talked about worship, was in the story of the Samaritan woman. If you want to turn to John 4, I'll just briefly read that little text there. John 4, starting in verse 19. And remember this woman, the Samaritan woman, you know, Jesus approached and told her things about her life that no one should have known, and she was amazed. And then she asked him a question. John 4, verse 19, she asked him you know, our people worship in this mountain, but you people worship in Jerusalem. You know, where do you say we should worship? And Jesus said, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seek to be his worshipers. And I think that's a good illustration of how Jesus was transitioning their thinking about worship from one of not only external acts, but one that involved the proper attitude as well, one where the heart attitude was one of humble obedience. I did a little research on the word worship this week, and there are several different words used in Scripture for worship, and most of them have a similar meaning. They mean to bow down, to prostrate, to show reverence, to show homage, it was usually, most often, was a verb in reference to some act of worship, but here we see where Jesus is transitioning to the thought of not just doing sacrifices or doing acts of worship in that sense, but that it involved the whole being. It had to be with and done in spirit and in truth, which was an attitude of worship. And the verses we've been looking at in Romans 12 the past couple of weeks, I think, really demonstrate this, that what true worship is, because it involves our bodies, our minds, and our spirits, our whole self. So we'll read verses 1 and 2 again and remind ourselves where we've been. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable To God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those are great verses, and we've been looking at what is involved in this extreme act of worship. So far, we've examined two of the ways one is to present our bodies a living sacrifice. My wife was telling me she met with Blaine and Andrea the other night and got some recaps. He just came back from a missionary trip with um, SOS and Mike Schott, and you can't help but think of living sacrifice when you think of Mike Schott and the way he approaches his ministry. He puts it all on the, the line. He was telling a story of how they had gone to this gang place where these gang members were, and they all had guns, and you would think you would go in and be careful about how you say, but this way I, And tell me if, correct me if I'm wrong, Blaine, but I hear the story that he was holding his Bible in front of the guy and saying, you know, just, you know, I have good and you have evil and talking about his gun. And he was telling him that, yeah, go ahead, Blaine. Yeah, life for death. And he was kind of in his face, this the way I got it. And he wasn't being, you know, he was right in his face, you know, and the guy's holding the gun. And Jim Bob Duggar was there, and I heard that he was a little bit shaken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's Mike Shot. And you think about living sacrifice. Now, we're not all called to to do that type of ministry and service, but we are called to present our bodies, to yield up our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that, that is done many different ways, and we talked about that. And we also talked about how we're not to be squeezed into the world's mode. We're not to be masquerade around in a mask of the world, that we, our inner natures have been changed. We have new identities in Christ. We're new creatures, and outwardly we are to express that in the way we go about living our lives. And we do that by our minds being transformed. How do we do that? We do that through the Word. We are transformed. Our minds are renewed by the Word of God. We acknowledged last week that we are indigenous to this world. That means we're in this world, we're born in this world, we live in this world, we are to interact with unbelievers, And but the balancing act is how do we do that and not be conformed to the world, in this world, but not of this world. We're ambassadors, we're pilgrims, we, our eternal home is in heaven, and we talked about that last week. Today... We're going to look at the third aspect of what we are to yield up to God as part of this total, all-encompassing worship, and that is our wills. In the New American Standard, which I use, we are told to prove what the will of God is. Some versions say that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. The phrase, according to the Greek experts, is a purpose-result phrase, which means that when believer's mind is transformed, When his thinking, his reasoning, his spiritual understanding are now able to accept only that which conforms to the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. The word acceptable, Paul borrows from this Old Testament worship language, the sacrificial worship language, describing the spotless, without blemish sacrifice. Perfect carries the idea of complete being everything it should be. Our wills should desire only what God desires and leads us to do, only what He wants us to do, subjecting ourselves to His perfect will. A transformed mind produces a transformed will. With the Spirit's help, we lay aside our wills and yield ourselves completely to the Lord and His purpose for our lives. So then the question we have to ask is, is, we want to know what is His will. We want to do that. We want to do that. So how do we know what God's purpose for our lives is? So in order to worship God the way our text describes, we need to fully understand the will of God so we can discern it. So the primary thing we're going to talk about this morning is this term, will of God, and how we might discern it. How many people want to know the will of God for their life? Everybody. I saw quick hands on some people. We want to know that. I've noticed that there are many different ways that people approach the will of God. Some search for it in every minute detail. They believe there's only one exact spouse, one exact job, one exact house. Everything they, they think is, is a, the exact will of God is a specific thing, and if they deviate from it, then they're not going to have those blessings. Some people think of it you know, as being just aloof and out there, and very few people ever find it. Some people abuse this concept, blaming their actions or their lack of actions on, the, oh, that was the God, must have been God's will. I think I've told some of you this story before, but we had a realtor one time that we had put an offer in on a house, and he got busy and didn't submit the offer timely, and somebody else ended up getting the house. And he didn't apologize. He didn't say that was my fault. He said, well, it must not have been the will of God. <laughs> he was a... Full-fledged Calvinist, and he believed that that wasn't the will of God. So you get all kinds, of and I've heard even we were some we were a part of a little small church one time, and we were we were in need of a pastor, and it's hard to find a really high quality caliber pastor to come to a little small church, and all almost every one of them's excuse was they prayed about it, and I don't think it was the will of God, you know. So it's not God's will that anybody come to our church. We went years without a pastor. So there's there's things that, you know, sometimes you have to be careful. So that, a, it's it's a an important question. I had my father-in-law tell me one time he knew the will of God. He he's, We were, Carrie and I were young, and we were very on fire for the Lord. And he, I think he was scared what we might do. And he knew that it was the will of God that we not go to Africa or anywhere like that to serve as missionaries. So it's a foundational question for all Christians. Actually, Pastor Steve taught a month or so ago on this topic. It was a byproduct of one of his sermons, but we come to it again, so we're going to repeat some of it. Doing the will of God is the heart of being a Christian, and I think we all want to do it. As always, Jesus sets the example for us. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ was about to be crucified and he was in the garden and he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Then what did he say? Nevertheless, thy will be done. So he always sets the example. Lord's Prayer, I thought of. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus was the epitome of doing the Father's will. And that's, that's our example. That's who we want to model our lives after. Now, we're not going to walk in step as Christ did, but we should be striving to do that. So what is the will of God? How or can we even know it? Well, you don't get very far in studying the will of God before you realize that there are two different distinct meanings of the will of God. And I admit as I study this that it can be a little mind-boggling because as you do it, you understand that there are, as you read over all of the different aspects of God's will, you're going to find out that God disapproves of some things that he ordains to happen. God disapproves of some things that he ordains to happen. And you have to admit that he forbids some things that he ordains to happen, and he commands some things that he ultimately hinders. Those are a little bit confusing. We'll get to some examples in a few minutes. But I have to admit that there's some hard teaching in this topic, and you can only understand these things by understanding that there are two different wills of God. The first one theologians call by many different names. They call it God's will of decree. They call it God's sovereign will, His absolute will. Some call it God's determined will. This is the will of God that He Himself accomplishes. He does it completely irregardless of what else is going on with individuals or the world or nations. It doesn't matter. It will come to pass. He alone will bring it to pass. If He wills it, It's done instantly. It's not done instantly in the sense that, in timing, but it's done in the sense that it will happen. There's no doubt as to whether it will come to pass. We can look at many different verses to show examples of this particular will of God. One would be, and we're going to jump around a little bit today because this turns into somewhat of a topical lesson, but Psalms 33 is a good example. Psalm 33, verse 6 he introduces us to God being sovereign in creation. He says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the, by the breath of his mouth, all their host." He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. So you can see he's laying the foundation of God's sovereignty in creation. And then verse 10 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, he frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. It doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter who what dictator is in a foreign land, God's plans will not be thwarted. It says, "The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people." Brother Dennis and I were talking about a lot of the things that are going on in the news today. And we're talking about the border and the, what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine and all the different things that are going on in the world today. And it's, it can be a little depressing if you dwell on that. What's What you seem like we're watching the America slide away um, as far as what our traditional value is. But God says his sovereign plan will not be thwarted. It's not changed by anything that people or presidents or... Governments do. He is sovereign. Another example of something that I saw was Acts 4. Acts 4, verse 27 through 28, shows another thing that talks about God's sovereignty. His will. It says, "For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur." My Bible, the word "your" is capitalized, denoting that that's God doing the talk. That you know, God is the one that it's being referenced. This was His plan. He predestined for this to take place. The will of God was that Jesus die. We all know that. Sometimes I don't dwell on the fact, though, that there was another side to this. The soldiers were involved. Pontius Pilate and Herod were involved. And all of that means that people's sin were used in God's plan of his sovereign will being dictated. Something we don't dwell on much. Another example is in First Peter 3.17. seventeen. First Peter 3.17 says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If God should will it that you should suffer. And that can be in, a lot, in this particular case, he's talking about persecution. Is there persecution going on in the world today? Of course there is. I mean, just... It's been a few weeks now ago that I read about a lady that was visiting relatives over in the Middle East and she was a converted to Christianity. She was from the Arab countries and she was converted to Christianity. And when she was visiting, they arrested her for being a Christian. And she was eight months pregnant and she was sentenced to a hundred lashes. I don't know if anybody heard that story. She had the baby. Yeah, I, yeah and that. but if the Lord should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right. Sometimes it's God's will that people, be Christians, be persecuted. That's that's His will. It says so, plain as day. But there's people on the other end of that. There's people doing the persecution. In His will, He uses sinners to do His will. It's a little bit mind-boggling, but 1 Peter 3.17 tells us that God's will is being carried out by using the sin of men. Scripture everywhere confirms this teaching of God's sovereign will. Proverbs twenty-one one, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord; he turns it wherever he will. It's like streams of water; he turns it wherever he will. Matthew ten twenty-nine is that scripture that talks about not even a sparrow falls without God's notice. You know, he cares about every little thing, every little creature. Psalm one thirty-five six. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever He pleases, He does. Ephesians 1, 11, God does according to His purpose, working all things after the counsel of His will. So that's the first meaning of the will of God in Scripture. God is in control of all things. We will call it His sovereign will. It cannot be broken. It always comes to pass. The second meaning of the will of God is not the will that he himself will do, but the will directed towards men, towards us. It's called by different names as well. It's called God's will of command, his moral will. Sometimes it's called God's revealed will, as opposed to his secret or hidden will, which would be his sovereign will. Do we know God's sovereign plan for America Do we know his plan for where we're going to work or live the rest of our lives? We don't know his sovereign will. And we know it after it happens. We don't know it before. But his will, his moral will, his will of command is his word. We know what he says in scripture. These would be his moral will. This is the will of God that we can choose or not choose to obey. Example, Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone who says to me, The Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone is going to do His will, are they? So not everyone is going to be in heaven. That's a choice that we have. This aspect of God's will is not secret. It's not hidden. People always want to know the will of God. Most of what we need to know that God wants us to know is, is right here in His Word. Let's look at some of the things that we know are the will of God, without a doubt, shadow of doubt. What is the will of God? I looked up some. Second Peter three nine. Second Peter three nine says, "The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." That's God's will. It's not his sovereign will, it's his war will or will of command. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. but that's a choice, right? Not everybody's going to make that choice. Ephesians 5:17, Ephesians 5:17 says, "So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It is not secret or hidden. Don't be foolish. Verse 18, what is the will of God? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The command is, be filled with the Spirit. So first we see that God wants us to be saved. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is another one that plainly says what the will of God is. It starts out, for this is the will of God. doesn't get much plainer. And it says, your sanctification and he goes on to specifically talk about abstaining from sexual immorality. But the will of God is that we be sanctified, so we can. We're getting a clear picture of what God expects out of us. We are to be saved. We are to be spirit filled, and we are to be sanctified, set apart. We can keep going, but there's. Um, I wrote down a bunch. I'll just lead um, a couple in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians four three. This is the one I just read, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Skip on over a chapter. 5.18 says, rejo- actually 16, starting 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we can emphatically answer the question of what's God's will for us by looking at Scripture. He wants us to be saved, Spirit-filled, sanctified, growing in the likeness of God. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be praying, be thankful, and that you could go on and on. What are some other commands in Scripture that you come to, to your mind that we are to be? That without a shadow of doubt, what is God's will for us? Can you think of some? Pray without ceasing. Assemble ourselves together. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Put on the full armor of God. Love one another. I love the love one another's. I actually wrote down some of those. The, uh, the one another scriptures. Love one another. Pray for one another. Submit to one another. Forgive one another. Do not deceive one another. Honor one another. Do not judge one another. Spur one another on. Don't slander one another. Live in harmony with one another. And you could go on and on and on. The Bible is full of God's commands and instructions for how we are to act. And not just act. But our attitudes are included in this. What are some of the attitudes that we are commanded to have in Scripture? What attitudes are we to have? Prayerful attitudes? Broken and contrite spirit? Thankful? Content? Humble? Consider others as more important? So you can see there's actions that we are commanded to do. There are attitudes that we are commanded to have. These are examples of God's will of command or His moral will or His revealed will. All scripture that imparts the way we are to act or think would fall into this category. Colossians 1.9 I wrote down. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul was praying For the Colossians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How do we get to know his will with spiritual wisdom and understanding? By knowing his word and applying his word to our lives by the spirit. And it goes on right after that to say, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. That's the living sacrifice and the renewed mind working together. The problem is we're not always content to know his moral revealed will, we want to know his sovereign will. How many times do people struggle with knowing God's sovereign will? You know, praying over what house to buy, praying over what car to buy, praying over what spouse to marry, where to go as far as job. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. We should. God tells us to lift everything up in prayer that we should be. But as far as him sending a lightning bolt and giving you the answer to those questions, it's not likely that that's going to happen. The the will that he wants us to concentrate on is his will of command that he's laid out for us plainly in Scripture. But our tendency is to dwell and to spend so much time trying to know his sovereign will. There's a scripture that came very important to me. Deuteronomy 29:29 says that the hidden things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Our concentration should be on the revealed word of God and obeying what we already know to be true, not on the hidden things. And I know that I've been guilty of this, and I've approached this wrong, and I know I've done this. Um, I was talking, and I know that I've specifically done this, but just not that long ago, someone I talked to was talking about a job, and they were talking about making a move and changing jobs. They were telling me all how God had given them a sign, and they were talking about that. And you know, and that—I don't know if I'm going to open up a can of worms or not. But is a is a sign right or wrong? What does Jesus say about signs? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And I brought this up to this man, and 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 he's a really close friend. It wasn't like we—I was doing anything anything but lovingly talking with him about it. And he he gave the example of Gideon and putting out the fleece. So I think we need to address that. So let's turn to Judges chapter 6 because that was his example. And I know personally I have done the same thing. But you have to be careful because when it's not something that specifically is in God's word and your signs can be from God, signs can be from Satan, signs can be coincidental. I mean, how do you know what is real? So let's look at Judges chapter 6, the sign of the fleece. Now, the context of this is that God had told Gideon that the Israelite troops that he was leading were going to defeat the Midianite invaders. And we'll pick up just the, in the story of the fleece. And Gideon says in verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me and as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on the ground. So this is the story of the fleece, to put it in context, the sign of the fleece. Now, a couple of things stand out at me in this passage one of them is, God had already spoken to him, right? If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. God already told him something. Now, is Gideon's faith strong or weak? It's weak. Gideon's faith is weak. He's not listed in the faith chapter of 11 of Hebrews. Chapter 11 of Hebrews. He's not like Abraham who was told and went out you know, on God's word. He, his faith is not commended here. This is actually a sign of weak faith, and he even knew it because, what in verse thirty nine he said, "Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more." He's in a, in a way he's testing God. You know, you really mean what you say. You know, he, don't, don't don't get angry with me. Let me let me ask you again. That's not a sign of something we want to hold up as a model. So if we're saying we need a sign. Then I think using Gideon as example is actually an example of a weak faith, not a strong and valid faith. And there's also things, you know, that we have that as Christians now that Gideon didn't have. First, we have the complete Word of God, which we know is God breathed, is useful. First, is it Second uh, Timothy three says is is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, lacking nothing. God has assured us that his word is all we need to be thoroughly equipped for everything in life. We don't need experiential proofs, signs, voices, miracles to verify what he has already told us. Our second advantage is, over Gideon is that every Christian now has the Holy Spirit, who is God himself residing in our heart to help guide, direct, and encourage us. So rather than seeking signs versus fleeces, we should be content to know God's will for us in every situation, every day. You could quote Colossians 3.16, let the word of God Christ dwell in you richly. So if we are living out the will that has been revealed to us in Scripture, if we are walking in the Spirit, if we are being sanctified, set apart, if we are doing all the things that we mentioned earlier, if these characterize our life, the decisions we make will be in accordance with God's will. He will bless us immeasurably with his peace and assurance, and there will be no need to put out pieces and signs. God wants us to know his revealed will, and what he wants us to do concerning his hidden or sovereign will, what does he want us to do? He wants us to trust and to have faith. He wants us to exercise faith when it comes to that. So what do we do when the Bible doesn't speak clearly? When it's not a moral command, it's not something that's black and white in Scripture. For instance, let's take the spouse, for instance, for younger people here. Um, if you're going to search for a spouse and the Bible doesn't say, it didn't tell me, marry my wife, Terry. It, how do we go about making those decisions But by using Scripture? Well, that's where biblical principles come into play. What does the Bible say about choosing a spouse? I can think of one scripture that's very plain. Anybody? Do not be unequally yoked. yoked. That's black and white. Unequally yoked means if you're a Christian, don't marry an unbeliever. Marry someone who's like-minded in the sense of being saved, and you can live your life out together serving the Lord. A lot of marriages go wrong because of that. How about buying a house? You're going to buy a house. How would you put in biblical principles? The Bible's not going to tell you whether to buy this house or that house. What kind of biblical principle would you use? Good stewards of your money. The Bible has all kinds of things to say about finances, does it not? It tells us, you know, thing, principles that would basically, I think of the scripture that says a borrower can be, it will be a lender's slave. Now, that doesn't mean you can't borrow money, but if, in the Bible context, it's talking about being indebted beyond your ability to repay. So you need to think about: Am I going to be able to make the payments? If something happens to me, if I'm, you know, get a demotion or the economy turns bad, can I make these payments, or do I get overextended and take out, you know, this? whole context of the real estate mortgage, a lot of innocent people got hurt, but there were also a lot of people who don't want to take the blame for buying houses on these no principal loans and things with no concept of how I'm going to repay that when the interest rate goes up. Now, I, I might offend somebody when I say this because I know there's lots of people that lost their homes, but and some of that was just innocent bystanders that got into this balloon that burst. But the bubble was caused by a lot of people trying to live beyond their means. So there are biblical principles that we can apply to every decision that we need to make in life. It's not going to be necessarily black and white as far as which direction, but there are biblical principles. I call it the lens, looking at life through the lens of Scripture. It may not tell you everything, but it gives you guidance so And I think Pastor Steve referenced this in his sermon a few weeks ago. If you're living your life, if you're saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, living in obedience to the Lord, then do whatever you want because your desires are different. You know That's what's going to change when you are living out your life for God and His kingdom. Now, you have to examine yourselves because you can deceive yourself into thinking that you are living a life a certain way, and you're not really doing it. You can rationalize. We're all guilty at times of rationalizing and deceiving ourselves, so you have to be careful. But I was thinking about my own life and how God changed my desires as a young believer. Actually, before I ever got really saved and started living for the Lord, I had, I've told some of you this, I had a desire to be a millionaire. I was going to be rich. I used to read all those get-rich-quick books in real estate, I had a whole shelf full of buying with no money down and how to use other people's money to buy real estate. I bought my first home when I was 19, so I was on my way. But then a funny thing happened. The Lord brought me to salvation. He brought my wife into my life. He brought three children quickly into my life. And it was my desires didn't change too gradually. They changed pretty quickly. The Lord got a hold of me and changed my desires and my will, and my will changed. And it's funny because I had this picture before I was saved of living in Florida. I was in Kentucky. I had a picture of living in Florida on the water, 35, retired, boat, boat dock, you know, all those pictures that you see. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember those get rich quick, and they had the guy out on the hood of the car with, you know, in his suit and tie, and he had all this money, and that was me. I wanted to be that person. But it's funny how the Lord changes your will and your desires, but in the end, He makes them so much better. He replaces them with new desires and blesses you in ways that you can't even imagine. Now, I'm much older than 35. I am not retired yet. I'm still working hard. But funny because my wife is in real estate, and I have owned some rental property, so he has gradually given me back some of those things that I wanted. We have just bought a mobile home. Um, on the water in Tampa Bay, that is a complete disaster. My one daughter said that she knew we always end up in a trailer. <laughs> that wasn't Angie. That was my other daughter. But it's on the water. We're involved in real estate and we're as happy as we can be. And because God changed our will and our desires are different. So that is how we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the Word, and that's what we how we prove out what the will of God is in our life. So back to Romans 12, verse 2, that's how we see this all connected together. What in Romans 12, 2, when it says that you, you're transformed by the renewing of mind that you may prove what the will of God is, what... Type of will. There's two types of wills of God. Which one is being referenced here? It's not God's sovereign will, is it? It's his will of command or moral decree. Because we know that because it's not the one that's hidden. He expects us to know it and to do it. So this is talking about God's moral will or his will of command. Hebrews 5.14, I wrote down, says almost the same thing. It says, but solid food is for the mature. What's solid food? God's word, that's the meat of the word. God's solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So as we apply God's word to our life, it transforms our mind. We act out, we live out that living sacrifice, and that proves or tests, that testing proves out what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Will anyone do the will of God if they do not have a spiritually renewed mind? Now, you may act it out in your life, but if the attitude and heart's not right, you're still not doing the will of God. So in conclusion, how is proving what the will of God, how does that relate to worship, which actually is the context of these verses? As we surrender our bodies and minds up to Christ, he replaces our will with his. Our desires change our heart and attitudes change. That is what proves His will, that which is good and acceptable. When our angry outbursts are replaced with patience and gentleness, when our anxiety turns to peace, when our self-centeredness is replaced by love for others, when our desire for pleasure is replaced for a desire to serve, when our apathy for the lost is replaced with weeping over lost souls, that is what happens when a person surrenders his life up in worship. When we give our bodies, our minds, and our wills over to the Lord, that's when we really get to the place where nothing else is important but doing His will. Then we will be worshiping the way God wants us to worship. And God's always desired that worship not be from outwardly. You know, you think about the Old Testament and all the things that they did in worship. But even then, Isaiah 29:13 says, Then the Lord said, Because the people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. God says that the best and most extreme worship, which is our only reasonable service, our only logical outcome because of all the mercy he's given us, is that we honor and reverence him by yielding up everything. Our whole life, our bodies, our minds, our talents, our spiritual gifts, our resources all of it we give to Him. That's how we worship God in the way that He wants us to worship. God's will, we want to know it because we want the crystal ball. We want to know, does he want me in ministry? Does he want me here? Does he want me there? Just get to know God. Get as close as you can to God. Make the decisions that seem to be the ones that follow the biblical perspectives and and don't be breaking any of the commands. Follow all the commandments, and your life will be used by God in the way he designs it. His sovereign plan will be worked out in your life as doors open and doors shut. But you've got to be careful about even using open and shut doors because, I mean, Satan can open a door. Satan can shut a door. I mean, you have to really... You know, it's it's important that you look at the two different types of his commands and make sure you apply everything to the Bible and its perspective and not just be pushing your own agenda, because we can put our own agenda sometimes and make that God's will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together. <laughs> Father, I pray that these words are not confusing, that you bring clarity, Father, that you bring your Holy Spirit's guidance into our lives as we discern to live out your will. Help us to obey what we already know to obey. I doubt there's any of us here that fully obey your commands to the degree that we need to. May we live out, Father, your moral decrees in our life. May we prove by doing that what the will of God is because, Father, we want to serve you, we want to worship you with our bodies, our minds, and our wills. In Jesus' name, amen.